I'm Aaron David Miller, and this is Carnegie Connects. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I hope you're all well, wherever you are in this world of ours. I'm Aaron David Miller, a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, and welcome to Carnegie Connects, a series of conversations on issues of critical importance to America and to the world. Today, I'm truly pleased to welcome to the program Michael Kaufman, who's the Research Program Director in Russian Studies at the Center for Naval Analysis. For anyone who's been following Russia's invasion of Ukraine, it's highly likely you've encountered Michael somewhere uh, in the last year plus in print, podcast, or on the air. He's a former colleague of mine at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars, and for my money, frankly, is one of the finest analysts of the Russian military anywhere in the world. Michael, uh, Mike, welcome to Carnegie Connects. Thanks for having me your program. Uh, you know, I know war is unpredictable, uh, but I suspect it's safe to say as we enter the second year of the Ukraine conflict that uh, we're in for a conflict of some duration. Um, I saw the other day that uh, Paul Post of the University of Chicago, who studies these matters, noted that since 1815, Median duration of wars has been just over three months. We're now triple that in number and then some. And by the looks of things, it seems to me, since no side can impose, apparently can impose its will on the other in total victory, that sanctions haven't diminished Putin's capacity or desire to wage war. And Ukraine's military, backed up by the finest arsenal in the world, the U.S. military, Putin is going to stop fighting. Neither are the Ukrainians. And right now, there's virtually no chance of any diplomatic pathway. Um, I mentioned to you earlier before we got on air that the Belfair Russia-Ukraine task force, in its first year report card, um, saw the net change in territorial control since mid-November, favoring Russia by just 75 square miles. Whether that's true or not, seems to me it suggests... uh, a long conflict. You, you've just returned from a fascinating trip to Ukraine where you were largely in the Donbass. I wonder if I could ask you to start with just your overall impressions from, um, from the battlefield. Sure. Thanks, Aaron. So if I could summarize it, I think that since November, the war has been in somewhat of a transitional period. A lot of the fighting has been positional and very much based around uh, attritional warfare. That said, in late January, Russian military began a winter offensive. That offensive in practice is around five or six different operations, all of which together amount to an offensive. And overall, this offensive has been underwhelming. The Russian military had been very vulnerable heading into the winter, and it leveraged mobilization, having taken around 300,000 additional personnel from across the country, to try to stabilize the force, but it's not in a condition to conduct major offensive operations, at least not very well and not particularly successfully. That said, the battles really vary depending on where you go, and that's the challenge in this war. You know, the fighting around Bugladar is not the same as it is in Avdiivka, and that's not the same as what's happening around Bakhmut or maybe around Kremina. So if you know one fight, that's truly all you know. You can't generalize that easily. That's part of the reason why I try to do field studies like this, to go see what's happening, different parts of the battlefield, 
talk to Ukrainian troops, get a sense both of the fight, but also of the history of the battles that led up to this over the course of the last year. Because a lot of what we often know about the war isn't necessarily true. It's sort of a first cut of history in our own minds. So with that in mind, I think in general, the Russian winter offensive has been rather lackluster. Ukraine's best battle is probably Buladar, where they seem to be holding quite well. I'd say Ukraine's perhaps uh, least advantageous battle, the battle that doesn't play to Ukraine's best strengths as a force is Bakhmut, where its position is somewhat precarious and the Russian military, particularly Wagner troops backed by the Russian airborne, are trying to encircle the city. It's not the city itself that's the problem. It's the flanks that are slowly folding. And the attrition ratio, I'd say, isn't very good. It may be favorable to Ukraine, but not by a lot. And so both sides are, are taking significant losses fighting there. So with that sort of being said, you know, where we are right now isn't how the year is going to go, right? This war has gone in phases. One is not like the other. And so you shouldn't assume any kind of status quo bias. I think there's a real tension in the air because you can see that Ukraine is building up a sizable additional force for major offensive operations sometime later this spring. Where exactly it'll be, can't say, but what I can say that this is not how the spring and summer is going to go. That is the current fighting you're observing or the state of affairs on the ground isn't going to continue this way. Yeah. Um, let me ask you a question on reporting. Um, if you're a consumer of American media and it comes in all shapes and sizes, some are more authoritative and, and reliable than the others. It, what you saw and what you read in, in our press, the way the war is being portrayed, is there, a, is there a gap? I won't call it a credibility gap that's pejorative, but is there a, a gap in in how to describe the war and what's actually happening on the ground as you saw it, as opposed to what I'm reading in the Post, the New York Times, the Journal, and I don't know how many websites and, and blogs. Sure, well, there's always a gap, right? In covering any war, there's a great deal you don't know, and you're often very limited by access. Um, I'm not in journalism. I have plenty of colleagues who are. I think they try to do their best, particularly those who are reporting on the ground. But it varies. It varies extensively. For one, you know, this may sound a bit banal, Aaron, but it is a war. And if you're not uh, much into military affairs or military analysis, it's not that easy to cover. You have to have a sense of, of these kind of questions and matters. Another, uh, folks are limited in their access. So often they can go to maybe one part of the battlefield, interview people there, and they generalize from that picture. But that's actually one set of anecdotes from a particular fight. And then most importantly, the folks that have the most access to the press, typically officials, senior military officials, political officials, okay, they shape the narrative, but they shape the narrative naturally instrumentally, especially those who are at war. And you can understand it, right? Like it's their job to get the most support for their country, to paint the best picture for how the fight is going and paint the worst picture for the adversary, right? That is to be expected. And if they drive the narrative and there isn't a lot of access or a lot of scrutiny for what's going on, of course, you get a distorted picture in the war. And last but not least, many of us consume the conflict through social media. But that is a very caricature perception of the war. There's a great deal you're not seeing from the other side. And we are observing it through a medium that's very friendly towards our point of view because we want Ukraine to win. So we're going to be very positive towards Ukraine. That also makes sense from my point of view. 
but we have to be appreciative of all the things we're not seeing about the conflict. Is there one thing, Mike, I mean, it's, fa- it's a fascinating point you make. Is there one thing that we're not understanding, seeing, or that is being underreported that you sensed as a takeaway first with respect to the Ukrainian military? I think one thing we don't get to see as much is about what's happening to the actual force, the transformation in the Ukrainian military, in part because neither army, the Russian or the Ukrainian one today, looks remotely the way they did when the war began a year ago. Both of them have gone through major changes. Both have suffered significant losses. Yes, the Russian losses are much worse, but the Ukrainian losses are not insignificant. And so both of these forces have transformed. If you were an expert on the Russian military, uh, perhaps a year ago, or on the Ukrainian military, you wouldn't recognize big parts of this force today. And that's worth noting, right? These forces change. And you do have to go there to get a sense of it. You're not going to get you're not going to get a good understanding just by reading official statements or senior military official representations of what is taking place. You actually have to go around, try to talk to people at different levels or different units of the force to get a sense of the situation. Yeah, I wanted to ask you in terms of the learning, the, the learning curve. What what do you think, given the given the reporting on on the initial stages of the Russian military offensive, portrayed an army that was essentially suffering from just about everything? What have the Russians learned that have helped them improve their performance? Sure. So the Russian military is, I'd say, a lot less rigid and ossified than they may appear. There are definitely battles like Wuladar where you see them being given repeated orders to do the same thing over and over again. It doesn't look especially successful, right? But across different parts of the battle, you see adaptations of force structure. You see Russians changing tactics. You see uh, different approaches to, let's say, artillery duels, counter-battery fire, formation of assault detachments. Or in the case of Wagner PMCs at Bakhmut, right? All of us kind of got the sense that there are human waves of uh, prisoners who have been taken into Wagner being used to Bakhmut. But that's not what's really eating, been eating away at Ukrainian lines. It's Wagner assault detachments that come during day and others that come specifically at night that are organized based on experienced fighters with fire support who attack Ukrainian positions in fairly flexible and adaptable ways. I'm being a bit gen- generic in how I describe this right now but who basically uh, capitalize on the exhaustion caused by these larger human wave attacks. And they're the ones that do much more of the damage. And so if you look across the battlefield, it sort of really depends. Um, you have Russian units like Naval Infantry and Airborne that are more capable or maybe than the regular units. And in general, while the Russian military is not nearly as flexible as the Ukrainian military, a lot of the Ukrainian military does mission command in some respects by default, right? takes initiative, is fairly adaptable. The Ukrainian military is also not quite, uh, let's say, uh, as one-sidedly Western-looking as it's often portrayed. It too has major culture clashes. It also has one foot in the past and one foot sort of in the present or the future. It too suffers from officers who were trained in the more Soviet tradition or who lack military experiences, right? And it too has gone to the sort of transition because of a high level of losses where experienced people have been lost, right? Some of the folks that NATO trained between 2014 and 2022, they've also been lost because you often lose your best people at war first. That unfortunately is what tends to happen, right? And then you eventually get a force that's a variegated mix. Old reserve officers come back, newly mobilized personnel who have only known civilian life 
are intermixing or interspersed with those who have prior combat experience. Fascinating. You raised Bakhmut a couple times, and again, back to the American media, it's focused heavily in recent days. Unpack for us, if you could, Bakhmut. I mean, a town initially of 70,000, now reduced to rubble, according to some some estimates. What, what is the importance of Bakhmut as a symbol and as a practical reality on the battlefield? Sure. I know there's been a lot of focus on Bakhmut. Unfortunately, I think probably to the detriment of some of the other battles that are taking place. But this is perhaps the most significant battle from a political standpoint. I think Bakhmut's become politically symbolic. This battle's been ongoing since July. However, after the Russian withdrawal from Kherson, you saw Russian military deploy forces to Bakhmut and the Ukrainian military as well. And so the fighting there really intensified, and I think a lot of the attention zoomed in on this particular battle. Ukrainian leadership has chosen to make Bakhmut politically symbolic. And I understand that for two reasons. First, military strategy at the end of the day is political in nature, right? It links operations to political objectives. And second, wars are fundamentally contests of wills, right? And so I think Ukrainian leadership has chosen to make Bakhmut a contest of will with the with the Russian armed forces. Okay, that being said, my personal impression, this is just only one analyst view, is that Bakhmut was a fairly advantageous battle up to a point, but all strategies can reach diminishing returns. And in the past couple of months, especially after losing the northern town of Solodar, the Ukrainian position there has become more precarious. And I think they're looking to hold on to it. I suspect they are going to try to hold on to Bakhmut until Ukraine is able to launch its own major counteroffensive. But the situation there is quite difficult. Um, the city has not been reduced to rubble. Ukraine still controls a large part of the western side of the city with high rises and what have you. And there are some people still living there, believe it or not. I was there myself and I ran into them and I found the situation surreal. Uh, Bakhmut is subjected to daily barrages, a lot of urban combat, uh, building to building fighting. But there are people still living in some of these buildings. There are people even still outside that that I had run into uh, still trying to live in Bakhmut, which, which I found rather surprising. However, the main problem is even less the city. It's more the fighting around Bakhmut, sort of the larger Bakhmut battle and what's taking place on the flanks where the main supply route to Bakhmut is increasingly endangered or may become contested by Russian forces. I mean, if if in the end the Russians prevail and Ukrainian forces in the city or surrounding the city um, are forced to retreat or create new lines, is that, in terms of the practical significance of Bakhmut as the an entry point to the Donbass, does any of that matter? So... I, I don't want to be glib here. I don't think it matters that much. Yes, Bakhmut is a gateway to Slavyansk and Kramatorsk, but Ukraine actually has rather favorable positions on high ground west of Bakhmut. And the Russian military at this stage does not have any sort of supporting axis of advance. It hasn't broken out anywhere else in the south of Donetsk. So it's not likely to gain momentum. It would only try to consolidate lines around Bakhmut probably turn its way, uh, turn the direction of attack north towards Siversk or Bilohorovka, where there's been fighting for several months anyway. But the short point here is that I don't think any strategic calamity will necessarily befall the Ukrainian position if they are forced to withdraw from Bakhmut. You know, you, you mentioned that, and I think it's something that forces you to think about how dynamic conflicts and war can be, that 
the various phases of the war don't necessarily <clears throat> look like previous phases, and the one we're in now could change. So before we get to the, uh, my question on what the Ukrainian offense, spring offensive is likely to look like, can you imagine, and maybe this is simply too speculative uh, a question, can you imagine moving out of a, this attritional phase of the war into a more dynamic uh, phase sometime in 2023, where in fact one side or the other succeeds in creating sufficient momentum that would effectively change the way the the way the momentum of the war is playing out. So. The first answer to that is yes, most definitely. I think we'll see a major offensive operation by the Ukrainian military in the coming months. I don't know necessarily how it will play out. I think that folks overly assume that they're going to see one offensive and that offensive will either fail or succeed in a matter of days. But that's not a very uh, practical way to look at it. I think what's likely going to happen is you're going to see a series of attacks or offensives, and it's going to be something a bit like the Ukrainian operation in Kyrgyzstan. But it was initial offensive, it then uh, largely stalled out. Then there was a renewed effort. And over time, Ukrainian forces pressed the Russian military out of that foothold. Now, I don't necessarily know where it's going to be, but I think what you're likely going to see is several months of operations rather than one operation playing out over the course of a single day. There's my own personal impression of it. I think either way, you will see a change in momentum in this war. However, whether or not the Ukrainian military can break the Russian lines at one or several points, that very much remains in question. I'm not going to try to predict that future. There's no way of knowing. Uh, what I can say is that the challenge, the task, right, is on one side made more difficult by the fact that the Russian military has fairly high density of forces and entrenched lines. But on the other side is made easier by the Russian offensive this winter because the Russian military chose to exhaust a degree of manpower and ammunition that they had in what I think was an offensive with low uh, prospects for success, they've essentially set up Ukraine as best they could for this operation. I just don't know what can come of it. You had a fascinating tweet last month, February, right, in which you argued that Kiev, if I'm quoting you directly, doesn't believe time, and time could either be an ally or an adversary in either side's calculations. The keep doesn't believe time is on its side. One, it's wary of Russia's entrenchment and war and the war weariness of his own allies. We'll get to that in a sec. And even though much of NATO's promised assistance won't arrive, I think you said in time for the Congo offensive, that Ukraine knows that it's coming, therefore it's somehow advantaged as it looks into 2023. Is that a fair assessment? I mean, are, is Ukraine in a hurry to do something big or significant? So in short, I'd say yes. And the reason for that is that the longer Ukrainian forces wait, the sort of attritional phase goes on, the, more, the greater the risk that folks begin to assume that we're in a stalemate. And many people have been proclaiming a stalemate throughout this war, almost no matter what phase we've been in. Uh, and, and political will begins to wander. I think that's one concern Ukrainians have. The second concern is a very practical military concern. 
which is the more time that is spent, the more time Russian forces have to entrench, to build up defensive lines, and the harder it will all be, right? So from a purely military standpoint, if you're looking at the question of relative advantage, at what point does Ukraine have the greatest window of opportunity to liberate more territory? I think the short answer is, it is when Western equipment comes in sufficient quantity along with an additional force that Ukraine is able to build up, which is taking place right now, and they are able to conduct an offensive operation, putting together this manpower and Western capability at a time when Russian forces are relatively weaker. And the longer you wait to do it, the harder it will be, and the weaker the relative advantage, meaning, yes, you'll be able to save the Ukrainian force of advantages in morale, in this and that and the other, but it may not be sufficient for what they are trying to achieve, right? It's not just about having advantages, it's about having an advantage that can be decisively leveraged towards achieving your objectives. Do you think they now have the equipment they need? And I know you don't want to talk about this, but I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you anyway. Um, do they have the stuff, call it stuff, they need in order to mount a significant counteroffensive to an offensive that you described as lackluster on the Russian part of the Russians at best. So that's within the next several months, presumably. Do they have what they need? So I think that they have some of the stuff, as you called it, that they need. I think that they are putting it together. They are assembling three army corps, and these are sizable formations composed of multiple brigades. I think they are getting together both the personnel and the equipment they need, and they hope that the West, namely the United States, will provide them with sufficient artillery ammunition for the offensive, because the Ukrainian military is first and foremost an artillery army and how it conducts both offensive and defensive operations. And right now it's rationing artillery. There's a real shortage felt on, on the front, both on the Ukrainian side and on the Russian side, actually. I think the challenge that Ukraine ultimately has is probably not stuff. We in the West, particularly in US defense establishment, always focus on stuff because you know we are a capabilities-driven technology fetishist defense community, right? So for us, the stuff is kind of usually number one. I think the real challenge on the Ukrainian side is force quality, right? They have the motivation, I think they want it, and they are going to get the material to the best extent that we can supply it on this timeline. Some of it will be there in time for the offensive, some of it won't, it all depends on when they choose to go, right? Aaron, I, neither I nor you know what that date might be. I think the bigger challenge is working with force quality and the fact that many of the people now in the Ukrainian military have been mobilized, and not just mobilized having had prior service, but mobilized as in they were civilians before having no knowledge of, of military matters at all. And so the force becomes relatively uneven. And so you can have some expectations of that force, but you have to be cautious not to overly freight them with assumptions that they're going to be able to conduct offensive combined arms operations just because you gave them the stuff and they have had some limited amount of training. Thanks for listening to Carnegie Connects. This show would not be possible without the generous support of our donors. If you'd like to support us, visit ceip.org slash donate. Don't forget to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, 
or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to tune into the conversation live? Click the link in the description below to receive invitations to the next Carnegie Connects. Now, back to the show. All right, so again, I know you don't want to talk about it, so let's dispense with it very quickly. Uh, Tanks and F-16s. What is the difference between stuff that is vital, that is stuff you have to have, as opposed to discretionary stuff that you would like to have, right? Where do tanks and F-16s, I mean, again, it's the media's focus on these two high-profile premium items. Is this, and I'll I'll ask the question in pejorative terms, now are tanks and F-16s irrelevant now to the battlefield dynamic? And under what circumstances would they become relevant? Okay. So on the tanks, my understanding is, look, this matter's already been decided. And a lot of the reason why we end up talking about it is because it it became a very central political debate within Germany, mm. uh, whether or not to send Leopard tanks or not. So tanks do matter. Ukraine has lost uh, a significant number of tanks. It also received quite a few tanks as replacements back last year. But getting access to Western tanks makes a difference. However, it was on a lower priority relative to other things that Ukraine needed. And I'll, if you want, I'll just quickly tear it up, right? The, yes, please. What really matters. So first and foremost, it's artillery ammunition and replacement of artillery barrels alongside uh, air defense ammunition. There's missiles and what have you and air defense systems. For Ukraine, these are priorities one and two, okay? The third or armored fighting vehicles. Now, tanks are a type of armored fighting vehicle, but the one they really need in particular are various types of infantry fighting vehicles, armored personnel carriers. Ukraine has very large brigades of mechanized infantry, right? But to be mechanized, they actually need to be riding on something. Otherwise, Ukraine has a lot of manpower, not a lot of mobility. That might work for defense and depth strategy, and that might work for holding Bakhmut, but it's not gonna work if you wanna go on the offensive. You actually need mobility, you need protected mobility, and ideally you want it to be mechanized. Last but not least, yes, tanks are a factor, and Ukraine needs tanks, and Ukraine needed tanks to replace the ones that lost, because even though they captured quite a few Russian tanks, in fact, on my way out of Bakhmut, I passed a reinforcing tank platoon coming in from the Ukrainian side, which was entirely made up of Russian T-80s that they had captured from First Guard's tank army at Izum, and they were very easily identifiable. As you could see, an entire unit composed of nothing but captured Russian tanks, they don't have the parts to keep a lot of these running, right? So they may, on paper, you may capture a lot of vehicles, but you don't have the engines, you don't have the transmissions, you don't have the parts you need to keep them going. So Western tanks make a difference. But the conversation overly centered on tanks, as though the war is going to be decided by whether or not Ukraine has X number of Western tanks, and that's simply not the case. What it doesn't touch are important things like force quality, training, expanding that, scaling it up and dealing with the real challenge in the Ukrainian force. Things like communication systems, things like distribution of intelligence surveillance assets and intelligence, a lot of other things that have been very significant in this war, but are less spoken of. And maybe last, since you, you mentioned F-16s. I think the way to think about this is about prioritization, right? Let's say there's X number of funding in uh, the presidential drawdown authority 
what do you want to spend sort of half of it for the rest of this year? Do you want to spend it on training Ukrainians on F-16s, which might have some effect, but in no way I think does anyone believe that they're going to be decisive in shaping uh, outcomes. And more importantly, we're not discussing things on a timeline for what is going to be the decisive period of this war. Now, my view is that the decisive phase is actually coming. It's coming from spring to summer, okay? And everything after that will be relevant because this is already a long war and it's going to go on and it will make a difference. But it's not necessarily what you wanna prioritize or where you wanna spend your money now, right? If anything, the priority should be backfilling Ukrainian forces to the extent possible for the losses they are likely to suffer in a series of offensive operations that will be undertaken, I think between spring and summer. Yes, you can add F-16s to that list, but does somebody like myself prioritize that in their mind as something Ukrainians need? No. Nor, nor am I in any way opposed to them getting F-16s. Just a question of where do you want to put first, where do you want to put second, and where are you going to spend the funding they have available for the year to support Ukrainian forces? Right. All right. So you used a very interesting word just now, which I I, I don't use, and I, I've rarely heard people use, and that is the word decisive. You said sometime in the spring and summer that this war may enter or the Ukrainian um, counteroffensive will occur. And you tethered it to the word decisive. When you say that, what do you really mean in terms of, we're talking about territorial control, presumably, correct? Gains on the ground or breaking of Russian lines, which then in turn create additional problems and add momentum. So when you say decisive, Michael, what what is it? How does it translate on the ground? Could you actually see a situation where there's a uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive that causes a significant break in Russian forces or in Russian control of X percentage of the Donbas? Sure. So look, in these conversations, we often have a bit of kind of decisiveness sophistry, which is what part of the war isn't decisive, right? To some extent, they all are. But realistically, if we look at where the war is right now, what happens on the battle buck move, from my point of view, isn't going to decide much of anything in this war, to be perfectly frank. However, the next Ukrainian offensive, if that is an operation that is able to sever, right, Russian ground lines of communications, the main corridor across the south, for example, between uh, Russian force in Crimea and those in the Donbass, it's not just about taking territory, Aaron. It's that it could have significant effects on the Russian ability to sustain the war. And it could be an operation that actually, to some extent, causes a loss of control and cohesion, a little bit of what you saw in Kharkiv, although I wouldn't be that optimistic about its outcome, right? That could have cascade effects on the Russian ability to sustain this campaign. Now, it doesn't mean the war would be over. And in fact, I've often said, look, one of the pessimistic aspects of all of this, that's often up to the loser to decide when the war is over. Even if Ukraine wins by whatever criteria you put out for a military victory on the ground, it doesn't mean that Vladimir Putin will declare defeat, that he will surrender, or that the war will end. And you, you yourself have uh, studied extensively Middle Eastern conflicts, and you might agree with me that the Six-Day War in 67 was, let's say, obviously six days, but then Egypt continued a war of attrition for many years thereafter. You know, just because a war ends doesn't mean that the fighting actually on sites can continue it for years and years. That said, I think in the coming months, we are likely to see the best intersection of Western material assistance, right? Does the most capability 
the most ammunition, the greatest assistance that the West can provide, put together with Ukrainian will and motivation, and the prospect for an offensive operation that could inflict significant changes on the trajectory of the conflict. And that's why I say the words decisive, right? Understanding that, you know, yes, this is a hard test to pass in terms of characterizing any phase of the war. And it's much easier to write this history looking backwards than it is to write it while you're living through it. It's a great answer. And, you know, in the Middle East context, not only did 67 lead to a war of attrition in 1970 along the Canal Zone, it ultimately led to a much bloodier conflict in October of 1973. Not to mention the U.S. victory over Saddam Hussein in Iraq. I mean, Nasser and Saddam were both roundly defeated, humiliated, and yet it was not decisive politically. And I think the notion that military victory ends conflict, I think is something people need to seriously, seriously consider. Um, Someone said that in addition to the will to fight, you have the will to fund. Now, you've, you've referred to this. Uh, a friend of mine, Will Embry, a former foreign service officer, um, said that quantity has a quality all of its own. Sheer mass, sheer quality, quantity. So doesn't this really come down to uh, the issue of which side can put up the most, the, the most stuff, arms, ammunition, sophisticated weaponry, and people for the longest period of time? In a 600-mile front, aren't we really talking, even if the next phase is decisive, a series of phases which still relate to the issue of attrition? Who can supply more for the longest period of time? Sure. And I think your friend probably borrowed that line from Stalin regarding quantity having quality of its own. Um, what I would say is that large-scale conventional wars like this, beyond initial operation, very often come down to wars of attrition. And it's about uh, reconstituting the force, uh, managing the question of manpower, material, and ammunition. They're incredibly taxing. And the side that's better able to reconstitute its military, that's better able to conduct national mobilization, defense industrial mobilization, is a side that over time can begin to impose significant dilemmas on their opponent, right? Because then their opponent begins to suffer from shortages of ammunition. Their force quality declines. They're able to get personnel, but the quality deteriorates because you can't replace officers and leaders that easily. You can't replace experienced people that easily. Uh, and the quality of the equipment of what they have available in the force declines over time. So we're very much in that phase of the war, right? And that's why I said it's a bit decisive because we're looking at an intersection where you know both sides have focused on force reconstitution over the last four months. It may look like a grinding fight, and it is, but behind the scenes, both sides have been focusing on force reconstitution. The Russian military via mobilization, and they may mobilize again. In fact, I would say it's a safer bet that Russia will conduct another wave of mobilization later this year, rather than not. The Ukrainian military, looking to rebuild its forces, expand the force structure, get additional equipment from the United States, from other countries, to put itself in a position to go back to an offensive footing. Because there's no alternative, Aaron. The alternative is that neither side has a relative advantage, right? And the line of control approximates something that you see now. Sure, towns change hands, some territory changes hands, but ultimately it's not decisive towards either side achieving its political objective. 
So I think Ukraine's best prospects are actually um, are this year. And yeah, I take your point. I've, I've actually been banging on that drum probably for over a year straight that this war very much comes down to attrition. And it's about quantity of ammunition and quantity of material. So when folks would ask me about tanks, I would explain to them, look, it's a numbers game. It doesn't matter what the tank is. It doesn't matter how cool you think this particular Western tank is. It actually makes very little difference, even though you think that in tactical engagements, this advantage will aggregate. The truth is it may or may not, but it's all about numbers and getting Ukraine the numbers and taking advantage of its its potential as a force while it has it. Um, this is, a pl- I guess, a political military question, but you raised it, you and Andrea Kendall, Tiller, you raised it in an article you did for Foreign Affairs not long ago when you made the point uh, about Russian resilience. And you warned us essentially against complacence that a loss of Russia's influence and power should make us very wary of a, quote, chastened Russia. I mean, it's the world's largest country, ninth or 10th largest economy in the world with 4,500 plus nuclear warheads. Russia is going to remain a serious problem, regardless of how the military phase of this war ends one way uh, or another. The, you then quote, or the two of you say that Russia is never as strong or as weak as it looks. Is that a fair assessment of, I'm not asking you to define the future, but. Well, so I appreciate that quote. It's often attributed either to Bismarck or Metternich or or, or various uh, yeah. uh, historical leaders. I'd say this, that the way I look at Russia is first and foremost, Russia goes through cycles of resurgence, stagnation, and decline. It typically defies secular trends as one of the few things that uh, make it distinct from other powers. The second is, uh, I think folks like myself and Andrew are very wary that because Russia is suffering a strategic defeat in Ukraine, it naturally will be undergoing some period of decline, maybe prolonged, maybe less so. It will take quite some time to rebuild its military. It will be solely kind of excommunicated from the excommunicated from the global economy. The sort of pressure of sanctions will not break the Russian economy, right? But they'll make it more autarkic and what have you. The people will write Russia off because that's what they do. And Aaron, you've been around this town long enough. You can easily pull up articles from 1990s and early 2000s explaining how Russia's dead. It's gone. We don't have to worry right. about it anymore. 20 years ago is actually a litany of these things, right? Mm-hmm. So I worry that hey. I've spent the better part of the past decade trying to explain that Russia is not 12 feet tall. I'm going to be spending the next decade explaining that they're not four <laughs> feet tall either, right? Because we don't, we tend not to do nuance very well. Uh, and that's the thrust of the article that the threat from Russia will change. But ultimately, you will still have a major power in Europe that is not a stakeholder in European security architecture, that is an embittered revisionist state. You'll still have a country with a sizable nuclear arsenal, with a sizable role in international politics that we're not going to be able to isolate very well, despite our best efforts, because Russia is not North Korea and it's not Iran. All right. And this will be a challenge. It'll be a different challenge. Not, of course, arguing that it'll be a greater challenge than it was. I don't think that's a fair argument. I think it will be a rather different challenge to manage and, and to basically chasten folks who think that after this, Russia is done, they can just focus entirely on China. And they can engage in a sort of magical thinking that Europeans are capable of managing the security threat in their own in their own theater, and that the United States can can basically prioritize, or not so prioritize, but focus exclusively on the Indo-Pacific. 
Yeah. I mean, you were, I think you, you made the point in something you had written, because uh, I'm very much taken by the issue of European de dependency, that none of our European allies would ever have been able to tolerate the losses on the battlefield that either Ukraine and Russia uh, have suffered. Um, I, I want to ask you, and I, you probably don't want to talk about this either, the issue of escalation, because it's predictive. Um, you do write, however, that the Russian military is more geared or comfortable with the notion of the limited use of nuclear weapons in comparison with our military. And I think you say that if faced with, quote, the kind of defeat that could threaten the regime or the state, um, Putin might well consider using tactical nuclear weapons. Um, I wonder, I know where many of the Carnegie Russia analysts, um, many of whom are Russian, stand on this issue. I think they are very wary of complacency should Russia's hold over Crimea be threatened, really threatened. But where do you, where do you come down on this, Mike? So... Look, I think while the acute risk of nuclear escalation, which had been perceived a couple points during this conflict, I think one back in the spring of 2022 and another one later on in the fall around October, may have receded, the reality is that the risk of nuclear escalation, from my point of view, is very much conditions-based, okay? And in that respect, it hasn't gone away. It hasn't gotten better. It hasn't gotten worse, okay? And the way I look at it is that if there is any likelihood, if we can predict something like a point during which Russian leadership would consider the use of nuclear weapons, it would be a military uh, outcome that is a series of events by which they lose effective cohesion, command and control of the Russian military in Ukraine, right? Something like a cascade collapse, not single operational defeat, or let's say a a Ukrainian offensive that forces the Russian military to withdraw, as we saw in Kherson, where they were able to withdraw in good order with much of their equipment, right? But a real catastrophic military event. And I'm not really actually uh, that focused on Crimea, because I think that the Russian leadership is unlikely to wait for Ukrainian forces to sort of take all the south and pull up to Crimea. Or if they are, that's in many respects a positive outcome, because it means the local leaders have time to deliberate, to decide what to do. Uh, and consider their options. To me, the more dangerous scenario is if the Russian military is really collapsing and Russian leaders are forced to make decisions under pressure, right, from a bounded rationality standpoint where they have limited time to decide what to do, limited information, and the military is presenting that the only viable alternative is use of tactical nuclear weapons. And there, Look, we all have our own view of Vladimir Putin. He, at the end of the day, is the main person that decides what's going to happen. I don't live in his head, and I don't want to live in his head, so I can't make predictions on that score. I don't know. Um, what I will say is that on that is it's important not to make up alibis, such as, oh, maybe Russian nuclear weapons won't work, so we don't have to worry about them. No, I think they'll work. Or maybe Russian military won't carry out those orders. Uh, they carried out the orders to invade Ukraine and to bomb and destroy cities and to attack civilian population, you look into Gerasimov's eyes and you tell me that you don't think he'll carry out an order to use tactical nuclear weapons, all right? I would not bet too much on that. Uh, and in the last but not least part, I don't, I won't get into details of nuclear employment, but 
one of the challenges is that if you're going to cross that threshold and you're going to take the assume the cost and the program of nuclear use, right? So break the so-called nuclear taboo, the way a lot of Western colleagues like to talk about it. The costs really scale with use of one nuclear weapons, along if you use 20 or 30. Because once you use one nuclear weapon, using more nuclear weapons, the costs don't substantially increase from that point of view, or at least they're not perceived to. And that's one of the worrisome aspects of it. So without going too far down the sort of dark rabbit hole, all I would say is that I don't think the risk is exceedingly high, but I also don't think it can be waved away or wished away, or that we should imagine that this conflict isn't playing out under the sort of nuclear shadow of the potential for nuclear escalation. Right. We're almost at the end of the 45 minutes. I have one final question for you. Uh, we could we could talk for another hour, Mike, um, about the U.S. role in all this. But one question I'm, I'm asking you to put on your hat as a uh, Russian watcher. I interviewed Victoria Newland not long ago on this program, and she said, and Tony Blinken, um, Jake Sullivan have also said it, that the main objective of the United States appears to be to support Ukraine um, so that they can, quote, tilt the battlefield in its favor. That's the second piece of a logic chain, leading to the third piece of a logic chain, which is that because of the tilt in the battlefield against Vladimir Putin, that Putin's calculations will then be or hopefully they will be, in their view, to realize that the war can't go on and that he needs to come to the proverbial negotiating table. I mean, that as far as if, if, if a military campaign is designed to serve political objectives, that seems to be the American interim objective is to make the cost to the Russians on the battlefield too high for the Russians to bear so that the Russians won't collapse or capitulate, but we'll see that the only course available is a negotiation. Does that, it's a logic chain of sorts. What do you make of that? Hmm. Uh, well, Aaron, I appreciate the opportunity from you to rate Tori Newland's thinking on this webinar. Uh, however, if I can answer the part of the question that I like, uh, I would prefer to take uh, first the question of whether it's cause-driven. I don't think it's so much cause-driven. I think it's driven first by conveying to Russian leadership that ultimately they'll not be able to achieve their political objectives via use of force, because I think Putin still holds on to the idea that Russia will prevail, that they'll be able to grind down the Ukrainian military, that Western support will fail either for political reasons or for material reasons. And the reason Putin holds on to this idea is because he's the leader of a great power, and leaders tend to assume in those contexts that they have a huge amount of latent power in their country, and that's simply a matter of will, right, a contest of wills. The problem for them is that actually great powers and superpowers lose wars all the time, and it's not just a matter of will. In fact, Russia's lost many wars in its history, and it's already in many respects lost this one, or it's going to be very hard for it to turn this into anything other than a strategic defeat, right? And so often they take the historical analogies they like. Putin likes the Great Patriotic War. He has kind of a fantasy that this is like World War II, and Russian forces will be able to overcome the Ukrainian military, but of course it's not like that. All right, where I'm driving this conversation. 
I think I think objective one is to convince Russian political leadership that this isn't the case. They're not going to be able to overcome the situation, and they're not going to be able to achieve their objectives, right? And I convince them of the second point, which is actually the longer this war goes on, the more likely are they to lose in a way that impinges on the stability of the regime, right? And they're likely to lose more over time in a sense that um, not only could they stand to lose in Ukraine, but the consequences for Russia get worse and worse, right? And so, yes, part of it is going to be cost-driven, but I don't even think that that's actually the main priority. The big challenge you have is that strategic defeat for Russia is not the same as victory for Ukraine. They're intermediate mm -hmm. but distinct objectives. I know folks around this town that think strategic defeat for Russia has already been achieved. Yep. And that the main question being worked right now is victory for Ukraine. That may or may not be true, but victory for Ukraine is the real challenging objective, objective that, or at least the main challenge that uh, that's being pursued right now. And there's also the secondary goal, which is escalation management throughout. And we touched on that in the in the previous conversation, the last question. So I hope without refereeing what you asked me to weigh in on, I hope at least I provided my views on the subject. You did. And I want to thank you. You're, I have to say, Mike, your authority and expertise on this is really quite, quite remarkable. I mean, it's been an incredibly valuable 45 minutes for me. And um, C-SPAN cover is covering this, so a lot of other folks will will have the pleasure um, and gain the benefit from from hearing you. I hope maybe uh, a year from now, maybe we won't be talking about the Ukraine war anymore. But if we are, um, maybe you'll come back. Uh, and I want to thank you very much for participating. And uh, to all Car Carnegie Next listeners and viewers, um, until next time. Be well. Take care. Thank you for listening to Carnegie Connects, a production of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Views expressed are those of the host and guest panelists, and not necessarily those of the Carnegie Endowment, which takes no institutional positions on public policy issues. Subscribe to Carnegie Connects on popular platforms such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast platform. Like what you heard today? Learn more at carnegieendowment.org slash Carnegie Connects. Tim Martin is our audio engineer, and Catherine Buchanan and Cliff Jayapranato are our executive producers. I'm Aaron David Miller, and until next time, think positive and test negative.